Father, we thank you so much for your great love and that um, no matter how deep our sin is, no matter how deep our depravity is, no matter how badly we have screwed up this week, your love never ends. It, it just continues and it persists. Prophet Jeremiah says you have loved us with an everlasting love, therefore you continue your faithfulness to us. It is your everlasting love that drives you more and more to continue to be faithful to sinners who stumble and fall every single day. I pray, Lord, that um, the word that is uh, here with us this morning would bless us and encourage us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, just a couple, I'm sorry for this, a couple brief announcements. Um, number one, if the, the, there's a, we have new neighbors, as you guys, I'm sure you can't hear anything. Uh, we have new neighbors here. Uh, if you guys just would not park in front of the little um, the landing dock right there, just if you're going to park anywhere, find two white lines and park in between there, that'd be great. Uh, the other thing is um, we are working on the noise, so just please continue to be patient with the elders as we uh, work, work through that. We are working on it, and we will uh, try to solve it as best we can. So we've been in a series called Elect Exiles in the book of 1 Peter, and the reason why we're calling it Elect Exiles is because that is what Peter calls these Christians. He calls them Elect Exiles, verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. And, it, and Pastor Mike talked about in week one how that is essentially what a Christian is. You are elect. And I know that's a, ooh, that's a really big controversial word in the church, but it's in the Bible, so you can't, it's in the Bible. The only discussion about it is what it means. We do know the elect means you have been chosen by God. In verse 2 it says, it is according to his foreknowledge. Before time began, he set his affection upon you. And now he is our prize. We are his portion, he is our prize. We are elect, chosen in Christ by grace, not because we are special, but because God is amazing in grace. But we're not just elect, we're also exiles. We, we kind of walk around with this subtle uh, ilk of homesickness. Uh, we walk around chosen in Christ by his grace, but we have homesickness. This world is not our true home. We are waiting for a, a true kingdom that Christ is preparing for us to bring someday. Paul talks about in Philippians, our true citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. And Pastor Mike talked about last week in verses 3 through 9 about this living hope that we have. We've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded for a um, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And these Christians that Peter is talking to, it says in verse Six, they've been grieved by various trials, but those trials are not meant to deter them or distract them from their salvation. It actually enhances and serves their salvation. It intensifies their faith. It strengthens their faith. It proves their faith. And then in verse 8, it says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This morning, I am going to be taking up verses 10 through 12. And the first phrase in verse 10, if you look at it, says, concerning this salvation... 
The previous verse, verse 9, says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation. That just simply means about this salvation. Let's just, it's, it's as if Peter's saying, let's just take a, a brief moment to go deep into the salvation. It's as if Peter is taking you down on a road trip and he, he pulls the, part, the car over in park, takes you into a pit stop, sits you down at a bench and just wants to tarry a little bit. He just wants to linger a little bit into the riches of this gospel. And I believe what Peter is doing in verses 10 through 12 is he's setting you up for verse 13. If you look at verse 13, what's the first word? Therefore. If you know anything about me, you know I love the word therefore. I love conjunctions. If you want to be a teacher of the Bible, if you want to be a student of the Bible, if you, by God's grace, want to be a preacher of the Bible, you better get used to that word. You better learn what that word means because it means that what comes before is the reason, cause, or basis of what comes after. So verses 10 through 12 is one massive setup for First Peter, excuse me, for Peter to launch you into verse 13. And verse 13 contains the very first command in the entire book. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, here it is. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first command. Everything else prior to this, he doesn't give you anything to do. He just tells you about the living hope that you have in Christ. Now, the reason why Peter is taking a few verses, verses 10 through 12, to take us into the, de- the, de- the depth and the riches of the gospel is because he doesn't want this, this little command here to feel like he's telling you to climb up a mountain. Verses 10 through 12 is meant to actually take you to the top of the mountain. So when he tells you to put your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you in Christ, it's going to feel like skiing down the mountain. He, he doesn't want setting your hope on the grace in Jesus Christ to feel like a chore. It shouldn't be something you have to do. It should be something you want to do. And verses 10 through 12 is putting the want in your heart so when he tells you to do it in verse 13, you'll be like, that's easy. So the big takeaway today, if you're a note taker, The big takeaway today that Peter is trying to get us to see in verses 10 through 12 is that the gospel is deep and rich enough for an eternity of worship. There are depths to the gospel. There are endless riches in the gospel that will entertain us for an eternity of worship. And what Peter wants to do, he wants to give you, I got, here's my three points. He wants to give you three allurements into this gospel. He's doing a a little pit stop to draw you deeply into the depth and the riches of the gospel so that when he tells you to put your hope in the grace of Jesus, it's going to feel easy to a sinner. And an allurement, I looked up the definition of an allurement, An allurement is the quality of being powerfully and mysteriously attractive or fascinating. 
So Peter, in this brief three verses, is going to give you three aspects of the gospel that are meant to allure you and entice you into the depth and riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the three allurements are this. The prophets were craving the gospel. The Spirit is preaching the gospel. And the angels are savoring the gospel. The prophets were craving. The Spirit is preaching. And the angels are savoring. So let's take these one at a time and then we will wrap it up. Allurement number one, the prophets were craving the gospel. The prophets were craving the gospel. Look at verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. When it says the sufferings of Christ, that is just simply talking about the death of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glories is simply talking about his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to heaven where he sits and reigns and rules over all things. And so what this verse is saying, these two verses here are saying, is that the Spirit of Christ, verse 11, inquiring what person or time, the Spirit of Christ. So Christ sent the Holy Spirit in these prophets, and they were in some mysterious way, the Spirit was somehow mysteriously in these prophets telling them of a coming Messiah who would suffer for his people and eventually rise in glory for his people. And when they spoke, or when these prophets wrote, the Spirit of God ensured that the purity of God's word came out. When they spoke, or when they wrote, it was the word of God. There are no prophets like this today. No one can write or speak scripture today. It has already been spoken. And the things the prophets were proclaiming and writing were infused with hints and shadows of the suffering and glory of the Messiah. And look at verse 10, the very last phrase in verse 10 with me. It says that they searched and inquired carefully. I looked up what those two words mean, and and they're meant to be taken together. And it's not necessarily talking about the way that you would look for your lost car keys. When it says they searched and inquired carefully, it's more akin to if I were to say to you that there is a $1 million diamond in my front lawn, and if you can find it, you can have it. How are you going to look for that diamond? You're not going to be taking the lawnmower and taking it over. You're not going to be like brushing. You're going to be carefully looking through each blade of grass. You will not eat. You will not sleep until you have found that precious diamond. And so when it says, the reason why I say that the prophets craved the gospel is because that's what this word means. They searched and they inquired carefully. The emphasis is not on what was spoken by the prophets. The emphasis is how they engaged with what they wrote and they spoke. They were searching into the scriptures. They were desiring what was contained in the scriptures. And last time I checked, Christ and his blood shed for you is infinitely more value than any diamond in my front lawn. And so when it says this is how the prophets engaged what they spoke and what they wrote, 
my question to you is, how ought you to engage the scriptures? How ought your hearts investigate the scriptures? And if you notice, it not only says they searched and inquired carefully, it was also revealed to them, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you. So these people who spoke and wrote the word of God literally gave their lives for what is contained here in this book. They literally shed their blood. In fact, Jesus Christ talks about the righteous blood that has been shed upon the earth from the righteous blood of Abel back in Genesis all the way to the righteous blood of Zechariah. They have all, their, shed, their blood was shed that we might have the scriptures today. The reason we have the word of God today through which we can behold the suffering and glory of Jesus is because these people were martyred. Their lives were taken their lives were spent, their lives were offered, their blood was shed that we might have this book. Almost all the prophets and apostles had their blood shed for our sake that we might have the scriptures which contain the message of the gospel. So what is your motivation for reading this book? What is your motivation for hearing me teach and preach the word of God? What is your ultimate aim if or when you read the Bible, what are you ultimately after? What is your highest focus? What, at, what is your bottom line? When you engage with Scripture, when you hear the Word of God taught, what are you, at the end of the day, if nothing else happens, what's the one thing you want when you engage the Scriptures? And if you took our How to Study the Bible class just a few, I think it was last winter, you remember that I said the ultimate goal of reading your Bible is to discover Christ, treasure Christ, and finally rest in Christ. That's the ultimate aim. In my devotionals this morning, I mean, the, my ultimate aim is not just to learn something. My ultimate aim is to have more of Jesus, to experience more of Jesus, to know Jesus more, that my heart might rest in him more, that my heart might love him more, that it might hope in him more, it might trust in him more, that it might hate sin more. And love Christ more. I wonder how many of you deprive yourself of the richness of Scripture because you simply aren't desperate enough. You don't think there's really anything eternal at stake. You, you read Scripture like you maybe watch a show. It's totally passive no active engagement. And last time I checked in verse 11, it says that these prophets searched and inquired carefully. There was a craving in them that drove them to read and take every word seriously. And if, you, if you've been, you guys have been using the First Peter guides, I hope you guys have been, been blessed by those. But at the very beginning, in one of the introductory essays, I wrote a little thing uh, that talks about how to use the guide. And there's a helpful acronym in there that my wife and I have been using for years. We got it from a, a famous preacher, John Piper. Uh, and it's the acronym I-O-U-S-E. 
Every morning before I read my Bible, I incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Oh, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your word. You, unite my heart to feel your name. S, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I might rejoice and be glad in you all my days. And E, enlarge my heart that I may run in the way of your commandments. These are all scripture references. My recommendation is that you would use that, that you would plead with God. Every time you engage with Scripture, it would not be something casual, but it would be something serious. It would be something amazing. It would be something wonderful that you would search and inquire carefully. You would cravingly investigate the Scriptures that you might behold new glimpses of the sufferings of Christ for your sin and his subsequent glories and his resurrection on your behalf. So Peter, as I said, is trying to allure you into the depths and the riches of the gospel. And the first allurement is that the prophets craved the gospel. They craved the gospel and they were willing to have their blood shed that you might have this. Allurement number two. Allurement number two, the spirit is preaching the gospel. Allurement number one, prophets were craving the gospel. Allurement number two, the spirit is preaching the gospel. Look at verse 12. Again with me, it was revealed to them that as the prophets, they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the things the prophets craved to see and experience and the things the prophets shed their blood for, the, for, the you, for you that you might have them for yourself are now being offered to you by the Holy Spirit me. <laughs> the scriptures are jam-packed with the gospel, and preachers are called to dig into the scriptures, discover new glimpses of the beauty of the gospel, and lay them before you to entice you to Jesus. I view myself as an allurer to Jesus, as an enticer to to Jesus. That's my ultimate aim. Anytime I'm up here, my aim is to allure you to, try, to Jesus. That your hands might loosen from whatever sin you're clinging to and you might actually see the everlasting attractiveness, the infinite desirability of Christ and his grace. And that your heart would feast upon him and his love. But the preacher is not alone. The same spirit who ignited the hunger for Christ and the prophets is now in the preacher too. Look, it says, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So I was down here standing next to my wife and, and the whole time I'm singing, I'm going, Holy Spirit, help me. Use me, Lord. I can't do this without you. I need you to speak through me. I'm going to declare your word faithfully. I'm going to lift up Jesus faithfully. You do what you do. You use me however you want. So yes, it's the preacher preaching, but ultimately it's the Spirit presenting these things to you, trying to allure you to the infinite riches and depths of Jesus Christ. In reality, the preacher is not merely a preacher and teacher of the word. He's a worship leader. There are two worship leaders up here today, Luke Rowland, who led us into singing, and there's me. Worship does not just happen in singing. It happens in the preaching. 
Preachers are those who have been called by God to peruse and pry open the scriptures so that they yield new treasures from the text for the congregation to marvel at. Preachers' main craft is not public speaking. It is texts. Their main craft is not speaking well in front of a crowd. It is texts. It is their gift. It is their calling. It's their life. Their life is consumed with seeing new things in this text, pulling them out and laying them before people that they might come to Jesus. The preacher has two objectives, to exposit the text. You may have heard of expository preaching. That just means you go verse by verse through the text. You actually pull out what is really there. My job is not just to say true things. It's actually to help you see things that are really there. I'm not just explaining the text. I'm actually drawing things out and helping you make the connection to what I'm saying is in the text. The authority is here. I do not possess authority. The Bible possesses the authority. So the first objective is for the preacher to expose the text, but the ultimate aim is to exult in the text. So teaching is merely explaining, having cute points, but preaching is when your heart flames for what's being taught. And so I, 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 am, I, am, I am essentially supposed to be preachers and prophets are essentially supposed to be incarnations of the gospel of grace. So when you see the preacher talking about Jesus, see the preacher talking about the text, you actually kind of lean in. You want more of that. The exposition serves the exaltation. What is explained is then experienced by the preacher before your very eyes. It's kind of like you're feeding your little baby in the, in the high chair and they don't want to eat it and you first have to take a bite and you have to pretend, although the preacher's not pretending, they're actually enjoying what they're eating to get you to take a bite too. The preacher's aim every Sunday is to allure your heart into the deepest fullest and most gratifying experience of Christ as he is seen in his suffering and glory. As long as the preacher lifts up Christ out of the text and the spirit of God in him will allure you to Jesus. So I'm going to, I'm going to put my cards on the table. For the next few minutes, I'm going to try to allure you to Jesus. That same spirit is in me now. The spirit is trying to allure you to Christ through my preaching. So what does Mike McKinney find alluring about Jesus? How about the fact that Christ faithfully carried an entire life's worth of my screw-ups in his soul all the way up Calvary's hill with a cross on his back? Or how about the, the fierceness of his love for me that even though he could have at any moment taken his hands off the cross, he still endured the et- entirety of God's wrath for me over a period of six hours to the point of suffocation? Or how about the fact that his example in laying his life down for me has taught my wife and I how to bear with each other and forgive each other over and over and over again? 
Or how about the fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he has now given to me in order to heal me of the depths of my corrupt heart. Or how about the fact that every time I feel shame for when I am exposed naked in my sin, he swoops in and wraps me in his robes of righteousness and says, my love, Michael McKinney, covers a multitude of sins. Or how about the fact that every time Satan tells me I am unworthy of Christ's love, he steps in and says, that's why it's called grace. And there's always more where that came from. Or how about the fact that he has given me a hunger for his word in the Bible to prepare me for the awesome task of teaching and preaching the gospel to his people. People ask me all the time, where did you learn to teach the Bible? I don't know. I don't know. You have to know I did not care about school and college. I cared about football and getting this girl right here to like me. (laughs) Seriously. You have to know that my ACT was low 20s. You have to know that my GPA was 2.7. And then senior year, (laughs) I did not care about school. In a single night, I started waking up at 5 a.m. To, re- to, to just devour the scriptures. I have no idea where it came from. I did not care about school. I didn't really care about the Bible. God just gave me a hunger. No one has, I, ha- I haven't even finished seminary. Pastor Mike and I were working our way through it. But no one's really sat down and said, okay, here's how you teach the Bible. It's very simple. I just have a craving for what's here. I read it really, really carefully, really, really desperately, really, really prayerfully. And when I see awesome things, I just think really hard, how can I say this in a way that's helpful? Or how about the fact, how about Jesus' relentless patience with me and how slow I am in learning to walk in obedience to him, which makes me never question if he will ever give up on me? Or how about the fact that no matter how many times I make a dumb decision which causes a breach in my character and just crushes me, his spirit comes in, convicts me, and comforts me until the joy of my salvation is restored. There are some devastating moments when you realize who you really are. You think you're this far along in the path with Jesus and then you have one of those moments when you realize you're really like here and then Jesus is like, try again. You're like, here? And he's like, try again. You're like, here? That's more like it. Some of the most humbling moments, but they're also some of the most precious moments are after you've made a dumb decision. Christ is still there you realize you're not as awesome as you thought you were, but it's in those places where Jesus comes in and shows just how marvelous his grace is. How about the fact that he will return someday, embrace me, grab me by the shoulders, look me right in the eyes, and say with the most intense seriousness, you did good, son. I'm here, and you can rest now. Those are just a few things that I find alluring about Jesus. So allurement number one 
that prophets were craving. Allurement number two, the spirit is preaching. And the last one, the angels are savoring the gospel. Just look at the last phrase with me. Things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The reason why I say the angels are savoring the gospel is because of that word long. Things into which angels long to look. The, the, the original word in the, in, the, in the original language is the same word that the New Testament authors use for lust and covet. Now, usually when we hear the word lust and covet, we think sin. Lust just means an intense desire for something. It's okay to have intense desires. It just needs to be for the right thing. And it says that these angels had an, an unbelievably intense desire to look into the things of the gospel. The word, I already said that, but that's not where the emphasis of the phrase is. The emphasis is not on what is felt, but who is doing the feeling. It's the angels that are longing to look into the things of the gospel. And what do we know about angels? They are without sin. They are pure. They have no corrupt desires. Their minds are never tainted by sin. They are infinitely thrilled and amazed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have been doing this since the beginning of time and have never grown bored or disinterested in the suffering and glory of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, one of the, you know, the famous preacher, teachers, theologians from the 18th century. Not many people talk about angels, but I came across this a couple years ago. He has a quote about this little phrase here. Let me just, let me just read it for you. He says, the more holy any being is, the more sweet and delightful will it be to him to behold the glory and beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the beholding of the glory of God must be ravishing to the holy angels of God who are perfect in holiness and never had their minds tainted with sin. The revelations of the glory of God are, as it were, the food that satisfies the angels. They live thereon. It is their greatest happiness. The angels of heaven never saw so much grace revealed before as in the work of redemption, nor any measure equal to it. How full of joy does it fill the hearts of the angels to see such a boundless and bottomless ocean of love and grace in their God. And therefore, with what rejoicing will the angels praise Christ for his being slain for sinners. A billion souls could gaze into the gospel. This is not Edwards, this is me talking now. A billion souls could gaze into the gospel for a billion years and it will never get old. The gospel is deep and rich enough for an eternity of worship. The gospel is objectively and endlessly thrilling for the born again soul. It is impossible for the gospel to be boring. If you find the gospel boring, it's a heart problem, not a gospel problem. If anything, the fact that the angels revel in the gospel reveals how much more we should be ravished by it. Jesus did not die for the angels, 
the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ were not for the angels. They were for you. They were done for you. When Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was dying out of love for you. When Jesus broke the chains of death, he was doing it primarily for you. And all of these allurements, again, are meant to take you into the depths and riches of the gospel. It is deep enough, it is rich enough for an eternity of worship. It will never be exhausted. The main song will be Jesus crucified and risen for heaven and heaven forever and ever. And we will never get bored of that. So I just have a few questions. Has your heart grown over time in its ability to extract endless supplies of joy and hope from the gospel? Have you become fatalistic about your own dullness and numbness towards the gospel? Because I've talked to people before and they, they know a lot of stuff but they're very, very, very discouraged as I have been before too. I know what that's like. They know a lot of stuff, but when it comes to how their heart feels about Jesus, it's very empty and it really discourages them. It really saddens them. It really grieves them. And they don't want it there. And my question to you is, have you become fatalistic well, I, don't, I can't have any control over my feelings, so I better, you know, I'll just kind of leave it up to the Lord, and I'll just kind of wait till he shows up, and I'll just keep kind of knowing stuff and showing up to church, but whatever. How I feel about Jesus doesn't really matter. And I want to encourage you, then why is Peter, if, if how you felt about Jesus didn't matter and it couldn't change, why would, why would Peter take these three verses and all this time to entice your heart and soul to him? It's because it can be awakened. It can be allured. It can be, it can be drawn out of its stupor and numbness to his grace in Christ. Has evangelism become more of a regurgitation of points rather than a poetic plea to a dead soul? You, I am not just alluring you to Christ, you too, with your neighbors and your co-workers. Don't view evangelism as this, I have to win an argument. I have to get a point across. You're simply trying to allure someone to Jesus. But here's the thing, people will not be drawn to the gospel if we are not stunned by the gospel. And I've been teaching the Bible for almost, almost 10 years now, and I've learned with, with students and with you guys that, that people are drawn to and are most interested in what you're most excited about. So whatever your, heart, your eyes get big about, whatever your voice raises about, whatever your, your hands start to move a lot about, you're exposing to people what's most thrilling to your heart. So the answer is not to, to change the tactics or the techniques to start moving your hands or, or getting excited. The, the answer is to be like the prophets and get back into the word and search and inquire carefully and say, Jesus, reveal more of yourself to me. I want to be thrilled with you. I want to I join the angels. I want to long to look into Jesus. Holy Spirit, allure my heart once again. Renew my fascination with you in the word. Everything in here in these three verses is meant to allure you to the infinite depths and riches of the gospel salvation in Christ to set you up 
from verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So my question to you is, what are you setting your hope on? Where are you placing your expectations? What's the one thing that you're like, you're kind of banking on? You're, you're, you're kind of sitting on the edge of your seat in, in life right now for this thing here. If this thing comes through, then I'll be okay. And what Peter's trying to do in verses 10 to 12, he's trying to allure you away from that. That will let you down. And God help you. If that comes through, that's a dangerous place to be because then your heart's going to really attach to it. Peter's trying to allure you away from this thing that you're setting your hope on. He's saying, don't put your hope there. You have a living hope, unfading, undefiled, never-ending, kept in heaven for you. Set your hope fully there that will never fail you, that will never let you down. So that when you're grieved by various trials, you can endure and you can be purified and you can be sanctified more like Jesus Christ. And so if you're like me, and you're a bit discouraged, you need to know that even as one of your pastors, I get discouraged too all the time. I open up my Bible and I'm like, I do not feel like reading this book. This is a problem, Lord, help me. <laughs> so if you're like me, and you're discouraged like me, let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us to awaken our heart to Jesus this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel and how alluring Christ is. Thank you for his grace. Renew our hearts. Draw us to him once again. I pray for those who are discouraged by how their hearts currently feel about Christ. That you would be so kind and you would let them know that you do not despise them, you do not condemn them, you do not shame them, but you come alongside them and you strengthen them and you encourage them and you lift them up. I pray for anyone in here who does not know Jesus, is not trusted in Jesus, that anything that was said today would serve as the converting allurement that pushed them over the edge and they can put their hope and their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. In his name we pray, amen.